Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever, your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director Mary Pilecki and Vice President and Principal Analyst Sucharita Kadali to discuss the future of B2C buying. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a big episode topic, the future of B2C buying. Maybe we could start at what is driving some of the changes around consumer-facing businesses and the innovation that we've seen over the course of the last few months or the course of 2020. Yeah. Um, well, there is certainly the pandemic-related issues that have affected B2C buying. But even before the pandemic, there were a number of factors that have been changing not just the offerings that merchants and consumer-facing companies have been offering, but also what consumers have been responding to and what they themselves have been demanding. And um, if I were to summarize it, there were um, a few big changes that have shaped the landscape of offerings and that will continue to shape the landscape of offerings. So um, one at the highest level is just the prevalence of um, marketplaces. And these are just aggregators of services. They can be aggregators of products, but they're basically sellers that are a single place where consumers can go to um, find whatever it is that they're they're looking for. And, you know, we think of marketplaces like an eBay or an Amazon, but I mean, there are marketplaces um, for everything from, you know, healthcare to travel to um, automotive, um, really any sector has marketplaces and the prevalence of those marketplaces has shifted not just what's available, but the, what the information and the transparency around that information that consumers um, have, have at their disposal. Um, the other um, issues are opportunities related to where in the purchase journey marketers can insert themselves. Because historically, when we think about the cycle of um, how, how people buy, it's, you know, you research, you discover, then you research, then you purchase, then you engage, then you, you know, you may have, um, you know, a re-research um, Purchase, pro- purchase process again. And the majority of marketer time is really spent on that discover and research part. But the majority of the consumer's time is spent on the use part. And the question becomes, is there an opportunity to lean more into the use part, to change the offering um, in a way that really the you know the future of buying becomes using and you know do you just um, you, you know kind of get items into people's hands first and foremost and then almost figure out what is the monetization strategy after um, and then the third big development is um, the opportunities with just new business models and new ways of monetizing. A company, and that can be you know monetizing your products, monetizing your services, thinking about you know fractional ownership, thinking about um, you, you know kind of deferred billing or um, you know kind of um, rentals or any other 
um, way that is just not your traditional, um, almost a cash and carry business, so to speak, which is typically the way that, that most products have historically been sold. And Sutarita is absolutely right. And when we were looking, starting this research, uh, it was actually pre-pandemic a little bit. We hadn't jumped totally into it. And what we found that is that the pandemic has sort of accelerated some of these changes, but they were coming along anyway. And, and, um, and underscoring all of this is also the consumer's desire to start looking at values and the company's values and how they how they think about their privacy and how they think about what the company does around sustainability. So that's an important piece of it as well. The changes have been consumer driven until we hit the pandemic and then it became totally needs driven on both sides. Some businesses like restaurants were struggling during the pandemic and they created new business models like fancy restaurants doing menus uh, subscription menus where you can get three meals a week or something pre-made for you. They had to do that in order to survive and the consumers have adopted these. But what we found is that consumers haven't just switched from say going into the grocery store to buy their, their groceries to, to delivery, they want both. So they want it all. So even post pandemic, if we ever get out of this, they want it all and businesses need to be prepared to service that way. So these are pretty big shifts. I, I do want to dig into the forces, especially that whole piece about um, focusing more on the use component of it, because that's like that, that completely changes the whole concept of what we think about in terms of buying. But before we go there, Mary, you hit on what I was going to ask about, which is the impetus of this research, right? I, I think coming out of it, you all have said that this is we're entering or we're in one of the most frenzied time of innovation around consumer buying. It's consumer driven. We've been saying that for years, but is it just that the combination of the consumer changes and expectations along with the pandemic make it that way? Or do you think it would have been anyway, regardless of the pandemic? And we were getting to that point where Things were just going to dramatically change. I think it would have been anyway, but it, it maybe in a, a different cadence. These this rapid shifting to new business models was forced by the pandemic, but the desire to try while you're buying or you know looking more at subscriptions, the idea of marketplaces they've been evolving for years and years, and consumers are just becoming more used to them. They some of them like them, some don't. Um, and I think the pandemic is really just an accelerator. Do you agree, Sucharita? Yeah, absolutely, Mary. And um, I mean, the big data point that we hear um, over and over again is that, you know, kind of the pandemic has, because a lot of this is digital acceleration, right, is that what has happened is that what would have happened over a five-year time frame or even a 10-year time frame is happening you know, in a year or in, you know, in 18 months. And I think that that's, that's really what's, what is happening is that I think that, you know, we would have just been talking about these things for several years. Um, but what we're now talking about is, okay, they're here now and what's next and what do you do to adjust to it versus, um, you know, kind of just, you know, warning people for the next five years that these changes were, were coming. So let's dig into that. Um, the, the force around uh, shifting to use and the actual product experiences. Um, 
on one hand, to your point, Sutri, I think you mentioned that. So we've been kind of talking about the subscription economy for a while and this shift has been going on. Um, say more about why that becomes such a big shift now, right? Is this just, is it more than just that evolution and only kind of in certain areas? Or are you talking about all the way down to consumer goods that we buy on a daily basis, right? That I'll buy my coffee and try it and experience it first before necessarily making a conscious purchase decision. Yeah, I mean, very possibly it uh, you know can go down to every every product category. And um, and David Trogue is our colleague who um, was really the the person who um, you know kind of led a lot of the the thinking here. So I'm gonna hopefully um, do him justice in in explaining um, what I'm about to say. But a large part of it has to do with the fact that when you go from, you know, kind of your, your marketing efforts um, from going from the, the discover phase or the research phase to the use phase, what that means is that you really, really need to start focusing on a better product at the end of the day. So what, where does your, your dollars go? Where does your, um, you know, kind of where does the allocation of investment in the future goes? It goes toward product development. It goes toward innovating on what the actual offering is. And it goes to just getting that product into people's hands first, either in its full form or in some fractional form. Um, and we've had things like sampling and, you, you know, kind of um, rentals, of course, for, for ages across a number of categories. But where it's different is the, the, the breadth of categories that this now extends to. And the ability to go from, from renting ultimately to owning and maybe incenting customers along the way of, of getting there. Um, but, but really the big net takeaway being that, um, we are just going to, as consumers, have access to better products in the future because that's where the investments are going to go because that's the, you know, that's the way that you differentiate yourself. You have to get you know, kind of into people's hands. It's not just merely, you know, kind of do you show up on their Instagram feed and, you know, kind of that's the solution to success. There has been an increasing willingness over the last decade for consumers to be eager to try new things. And that's actually something that supports this, um, you know, kind of new way of getting products to consumers. And it's about um, you know, reducing that friction in a world where there is so much competition and the barriers to entry from a supplier standpoint are lower than ever. So um, this is, you know, essentially the, you know, kind of the cost of doing business almost for, for a lot of um, new merchants, new brands, new, new suppliers. Um, the challenge, I think, is not as much the fatigue on the consumer side because people do seem to be eager to to try new things, especially, you know, the younger you are, the more likely you are to do that. I think that some of the challenge is actually going to be on the supplier side to reduce like fraud and to reduce some of the um, the abuse that could happen. I mean, you probably heard about um, some of the bed in the box solutions, which I think are, you know, the perfect embodiment of what we're we're describing here, because, you know, you you get them, you get 100 days to, 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 to try it out and keep it if you want. And otherwise, you know, you send it back. And there is an ecosystem of people 
who just try things for 99 days, send it back, and then go get something else. And as a retailer or as a merchant or as a commerce company, how do you make sure that the spirit of what you intended, which is to truly get bona fide new customers, how do you make sure that that's what happens and you're not attracting, you know, this like, you know, it's adverse selection, right? You know, you're not attracting the wrong customer set because that's, um, that wouldn't be very profitable. Right. So what David was saying is that the ideal the ideal thing that will happen is products will become so good that people won't want to return them because they have this option. If it's easy to return and they can return, why not? Unless I really love it. So if that mattress makes me sleep every night, then I'm going to hang on to it. You mentioned the fraud angle, which I I was with you and I almost thought you were going to go in another direction, which is the trust angle, right? So while we have these consumers that are more willing to try new things on, on, on an ongoing basis, they're also looking for that trust relationship. How does that cross with this new world that you're talking about where, you know, there's marketplaces that they could be going through, like, you know, whole new sort of ways to get product, um, bringing products and experiences into their home, potentially, that they don't have a relationship with yet. How, you know, how do we square those two? And do they work together? Or does one trump the other? I So when we talk about trust, I, you know, kind of my brain immediately goes to, you know, kind of the future of marketplaces. And I, I think that what we have started to see is that marketplaces, which at one point in time, were seen as this great equalizer and you know the ratings and reviews on marketplaces were seen as the way that you could validate um, everybody on the marketplace right on both sides like an uber you know kind of both the drivers and the the uh, the riders were were rated and that was supposed to be better for everybody but what we've started to see in a lot of other marketplaces is just um, a tremendous amount of fraud and a tremendous amount of gaming. And, you know, at this point in time, we did, um, we got some research from um, BizRate Insights that said like 20% of people think that when you buy from a marketplace, it's either a low quality good or it's a counterfeit good. So, um, you, you know, that's, that's a huge, huge um, counter point to, you know, kind of trust. And where, you know, kind of the, and, that, and that's what, part of the argument around the future of B2C buying goes, which is that the companies that show up on marketplaces, the brands and the marketplaces themselves are on this massive collision course because it is very, very difficult for the marketplace itself with millions of sellers that are there where they're using machine learning um, and, you know, kind of um, these technologies to authenticate the content, it's very hard for them for, for them to completely um, make sure that everything is completely legit. And that is a huge risk for brands because, you know, you end up with a lot of their counterfeit or, you know, great, it may even be legitimate product, but it's product that hasn't been stored properly. And it's not stuff that you'd want to buy. It's like, you know, or it could be doctored and tampered with. I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons that a lot of people don't like to buy 
like beauty products online because they don't know if like shampoo, somebody like, you know, kind of used half of it and filled the rest with water and decided to sell it to you. And what that means is that, you know, it's going to be a certain type of company that chooses to do business with marketplaces. It may be a distressed company or it's a company that, um, you know, so early in its, its product cycle that it doesn't have, you know, resources. It doesn't have a marketing budget to advertise itself elsewhere. Um, so it's dependent on these, these marketplaces, but, um, but brands themselves, um, you know, they, they, they go direct to consumer, you know, they're, they're, you know, kind of, they completely bypass the marketplaces. So you anticipate that we'll see more of brands pulling out of marketplaces. Yeah. And a great example, um, are you, there, I mean, two of the most um, prominent examples of companies already doing that are Nike and Adidas. And they, um, you know, they've known for years, there are a lot of counterfeit issues, a lot of gray market issues. And they just decided to say, no mas, like we're, you know, we're going to focus more on their, on direct to consumer. Um, we're going to actually cut out a lot of distributors so that there is less um, of a gray market altogether. Um, and we, we think that there's going to be a heck of a lot more in other sectors too. Birkenstock is another one that's gone in this direction. Wistop Knives. Um, there, there are quite a few that, that, are, that are starting. They tend to be more premium brands for now. Um, but I, I fully expect that a lot of anybody really in food or baby products, they should also be all over this because I, I honestly don't know how their lawyers let them get away with, you know, kind of their products showing up through third party sellers on marketplaces where the, you know, kind of the conditions of storage, the authentication of the goods is, is not, you know, 100%. And there's also, there's inherent lack of trust. 77% of U.S. online consumers use at least one security or privacy preserving tool. And that includes, there's like 43% who clear their internet history on a regular basis, 21% who block information sharing across their devices. And so, you know, that's the security end of it that people are concerned about, but they're concerned about their privacy. So they're concerned about the legitimacy of what they're buying, but also who are they dealing with? What happens to their information on the web? Where does it go? Who is using it? And then this comes all the way back around to advertisers and the fact that consumers are really, they're aware of this data economy. And about two thirds of US consumers say it's wrong for brands to track them across their different devices for advertising purposes. And that's a six point increase from just two years ago. So that trend is continuing. So it's a combination of things. It leads to more of this trying while buying that supports their needs because if they don't like Netflix, they turn it off. If they don't like what they're getting from their menu service, they turn it off. So that lack of trust is actually supporting some of these new business models. Which makes sense then to your argument, right, of, of that model, because I would assume that's then forcing brands to move to that try model, but to be able to support it in a way where they're not collecting much consumer information, right? They have to do it in a pretty arm's length way while still creating an amazing experience so that then they can lock the consumer in. That's, that feels like a tall order. I'm, um, 
who's getting that right? Is anybody getting that right today is kind of crack the code on on that piece? And, I, and, and maybe the question is more, not a company that was born as a direct-to-consumer kind of in this model, but maybe a more traditional consumer brand that has shifted um, into that model. Are there, are there good examples out there today? Well, we referred to, to Nike, um, you, know, you know, and I always worry of overusing that example because it's um, often, you know, one of the, the, you know, kind of the, the shining stars there. But I mean, they were always historically a wholesale model. And it was only in the last several years that they become more of a direct to consumer play. And even when they first started with their um, stores, a lot of them were outlet stores. It wasn't really anything. It wasn't at all really about the data. Um, but it was only, you, you know, kind of more recently when, um, you know, the internet has um, enabled, um, you know, complete transparency and their, you know, kind of even anything that was bootlegged of theirs, they were able to, um, you know, kind of push in that direction um, that, 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 you know, kind of they 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 decided and they discovered that you know there was more to be gained from them just going directly to the consumer versus going through intermediaries. Um, in the media industry, I would say Disney is another great example too because um, they were you know dependent on um, so many distributors, whether it was movie theaters or cable channels or um, you know kind of uh, whoever the case may may have been. Um, and they were dependent on Netflix for, for a long time um, with a lot of their streaming offerings. And what has happened most recently is that they launched Disney Plus, which in a very short period of time with unique assets that only they had because it was Disney, they owned their, their you know, kind of their IP, um, you know, their IP, which they had loaned to these other streaming services for many years. They basically pulled all that off and said, this is ours now. And if you want this Disney IP, you have to subscribe to Disney Plus. No, by the way, we're adding other unique aspects like, you know, the Mandalorian and, you know, and other things that you can only get here. And, you know, yielded, you know, 50 million subscribers in a very, very short period of time. Um, I would say a lot of players, and it's a tough industry because they're struggling so much now, but in the travel industry, um, what had happened was, you know, they were so dependent on, you know, travel agents or third parties or these, um, you know, kind of these aggregators, um, these online marketplaces, for instance. And what you started to see over the last several years is, you know, the hotel operators, the airlines, um, just starting to own the relationship directly with customers over, over time. Um, and a lot of that would come by you know, kind of having um, unique special privileges that their loyalty program would give those customers. In some cases, it was about price matching and making sure that the lowest price guarantee what, what came through that operator website. Um, you know, certainly a lot of it was having a good website, a good solid customer experience as well. Um, but, but there are, you know, kind of all of these examples of companies that had previously gone through other third-party distributors that have pulled back that connection and started to own that relationship with the customer directly. And they've leveraged it to get everything from higher margins over time to, um, you know, mining information and not like, you know, kind of the, the nosy, unnecessary information that, you know, kind of, you know, kind of aggravates all of us. It's just, you know, information to help them 
improve their offerings. Like, you know, if you see a lot of people searching for routes to San Juan, you know, that's an indicator that maybe you need some flights to San Juan, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe we could also double click into, I think, the last force that you had mentioned, Suturita, and sort of laying out all of the 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 factors here um, in this concept of new business models. So what does that come in the form of? Is that um, assuming new channels, new partnerships, really just entering different markets? Like, w- what do we mean by that? Um, any and all of the above, Jen. I mean, it really is, um, you know, kind of looking at all parts of the value chain, whether it is um, new suppliers, new distribution points, new payment forms, um, you know, kind of new customers. It's taking stock of the assets that you have and thinking about, are there new ways to potentially exploit it? Are there new um, you know, new revenue streams that haven't been considered before. Um, so in retail, for instance, a great example is the growth in um, what we call now retailer media networks. And it's basically um, taking, um, it's like retailers basically becoming ad networks and, you know, kind of being competitive with Google, Facebook, and and everybody else that's that's a media property. Historically, Retailers' primary means of making money has always been to just buy inventory from suppliers and sell it and resell it. And that's how they made money. That's it. And, you know, kind of all of the millions of people that would come into their stores or the millions of eyeballs that they got on a website, none of that was monetized in the way that, you know, kind of Facebook or Google monetized their their eyeballs and their traffic. And that's particularly ironic in the case of retail because they're already capturing people who are down the purchase funnel. This is a captive audience. I mean, you don't get more captive than somebody who's about to buy something. And, um, you know, kind of the opportunity to present those, um, you know, kind of that, that audience with, with, you know, kind of different, different ad formats, um, is, is something that retailers are now discovering is, an opportunity for them. It's potentially a very high margin opportunity for them. Um, and it's something that, you know, even if they are able to get, you know, a few percentage points of their revenue from there, it could have a really, really big impact on their profitability because a lot of retailers, like for instance, in the grocery industry, they have such, such meager margins. Um, but something like this could almost double their profits. So I get, Sudrita, that that's probably a really great opportunity um, for retail, but how does that square with this comment of trust, right, and consumers and them being tentative and, um, or the lack of trust, I guess, if they now know that this is yet another site who, um, or that is, you know, potentially using their data to target them or sell, you know, eyeballs as an example. I think that when when we look at all of Forrester's data, there are there's data that you're allowed to use that the customer gives you permission to use, and there's data that really is off limits. The data that's okay that people say over and over again they're okay with using um, for personalization is you know, kind of things I've bought before, um, you know, kind of, am I a loyalty card member? Um, you know, kind of what's in my basket now? That's relatively innocuous content. Not always. You have to be sensitive even to 
to that. But for the most part, that's the stuff that is at the highest um, on the list of what's okay to use. What's not okay to use are things like my social networking um, information, my friends in social networks, my mobile location. Like that's all the no-no information. Now, if you end up using the mobile information, you're absolutely right, Jen. I mean, you're going to totally lose trust in like about 20 seconds with, with consumers. But if the idea is to use relatively innocuous information, like somebody is walking through a baby section of a store right now. So all of the advertising that's showcased there is for other baby products or for things that somebody who's in the market for purchasing baby products may also be interested in. That's relatively innocuous. And that's very similar to a lot of traditional advertising anyway. It's the idea of like, if you're in a baby magazine, you know, what do you expect to see from an advertising standpoint? It's not like, you know, you're, you're appropriating all kinds of, you know, information about their political preferences and, you know, their, where they're living and where their children are going to school, which is the kind of information that companies like, you know, the, the social networks that we are worried about are taking. But what I'm, I'm saying is that this information is the, you know, kind of in the, you know, kind of the hierarchy of data, some of the most innocuous and it is some of the most impactful for driving conversion. And, um, and that's where the, the trust issue will hopefully be less pronounced than it is for the tech titans. And there's, and Suturi is absolutely right, but Fatima Katablu, who covers, she's our privacy expert, will also talk about not only the innocuous data, but what she calls zero party data, which is data that consumers willingly give a brand in exchange for some value. So it might be loyalty, you know, I'll get coupons if I do this, but they still have to use that very carefully. Um, but I may be willing to tell you how many kids I have and how old they are if I am then going to get, you know, something in exchange that will help me do better by those kids. Um, and that's called zero party data. And uh, you can ask, we actually have some new research coming out in the next couple of weeks by Stephanie Liu about micro experiences and how you can collect this kind of data. So clearly we covered a broad waterfront of topics, but what are firms, what should firms be doing now to keep pace, keep up with consumers and prepare themselves for the future? We actually have a great alliterative uh, statement here that um, they need to do what we call responsible reinvention, and that requires rapid, regular revision. So what we're saying is that whether it's a pandemic, um, today's pandemic might be tomorrow's climate change issue or a weather catastrophe or it could be a stock market crash, but things are, you know, the pace of change is accelerating uh, beyond, I think, anybody's expectation. And businesses need to be ready to reinvent themselves in order to survive in whatever the next thing is that happens. And whether that's just a consumer trend that's extending or whether that is some sort of catastrophe. And to do that, we believe they have to they have to create a strategy that forces them to assess um, themselves and three questions regularly. And and the cadence of that is really up to the business. But you know, something like a restaurant may have to do this quarterly 
<clears throat> and maybe a, a different kind of business, a moving van business might only have to do this annually. But there are three questions they need to ask. The first is what's happening with the consumer? What fundamental changes are consumers experiencing? Um, and the second one then is your product. How, you know, how is your product meeting those consumer needs and will it meet these new kind of needs that we're anticipating? And then the third thing is what's the optimal structure for my business to match that market with the products? And an easy example of this just generically is during the pandemic, we saw uh, beer companies, you know, who make alcohol and people during the pandemic, we're still drinking beer, thank goodness. But there isn't as great a need for beer. And there was a much bigger need for something else that wasn't a big deal before. And that was hand sanitizer. Well, alcohol brewing companies can make hand sanitizer. So some of them have very successfully transferred some of their line. They're still making beer in one area, but in another area, they're creating and selling hand sanitizer and they're meeting the consumer needs. They're still making money, even though people aren't going out to get their beer as often as they used to. And that's, you know, that's a very extreme change. They don't all have to be that extreme, but a business needs to think you know, what can I do um, if something happens? And it's some of it is scenario planning. You know, what if there's an earthquake? Or, you know, what if the temperature of the earth becomes 100 degrees every day? How is that going to change what products I deliver? Um, and so those that's what we're thinking about, this reinvention. I mean, it's not necessarily the most, um, you know, shocking um, you know, kind of takeaway, because we've been saying this as as Forrester for years, which is, you know, to constantly be innovating, looking, you know, behind you, in front of you, all around you for how things are changing and, and adjusting. Um, you, you know, I always point to when we look, I mean, it's like there, there's so much to disparage, but there's so much to admire about the technology titans. And the biggest thing is that when you go back to the year 2000 and look at their revenue models of Google, of um, Microsoft, of Apple, of Amazon, they were completely different in the year 2000 than what they are today. How they make money, who their customers are, and how they are monetizing their assets. When you look at most commerce companies, their revenues, if they were even around in 2000, are exactly the same as they are today. And therein lies the difference. And when I step back and say, you know, kind of, are you innovating? Having like an innovation team or saying, yes, we innovate is not proof that you're innovating. The proof that you're innovating is if I go back 10 to 20 years in your revenue documents and I see substantial difference, that means that you're innovating. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Sutrita. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.